You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. If you have the same password for a couple of years on a website, you don't know if that database could have been compromised and then the, the company never made it publicly known that they had lost a million user accounts. So it's always wise to just rotate your passwords. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the CyberWire's Hacking Humans podcast, where each week we look behind the social engineering scams, phishing schemes, and criminal exploits that are making headlines and taking a heavy toll on organizations around the world. I'm Dave Bittner from the CyberWire, and joining me is Joe Kerrigan from the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute. Hello, Joe. Hello, Dave. we got some good stories this week. And later in the show, Carol Terrio returns. She's got an interview with Larry Cashdollar. He's from Akamai, and he's going to describe a clever phishing campaign. And we are back. Joe, I am going to kick things off this week. My story is about the curious case of Katie Jones. And I have to ask, Joe, are you familiar with Katie Jones? Yeah, I know who she is. I'm connected with her on LinkedIn. <laughs> okay, <laughs> Of course you are. You're the one. Right. <laughs> okay. So uh, I'm not connected with her. No. LinkedIn. Speaking I- of LinkedIn, <laughs> it is one of the key elements of this story. So let's dig into LinkedIn. So how much do you scrutinize the requests you get on LinkedIn? I scrutinize them more than most. I probably accept about half the people and I use my network as verification. So I'll look and see like if they're friends with you and maybe some other people in the mm-hmm. security industry, then I'll accept them. Uh, but if they don't have any common friends or if something looks amiss, like I had one, there was a picture of a woman and her last name was in all caps and her profile was kind of empty. And she was friends with like 15 people I knew or not friends, but connected yeah. with 15 people I knew. I never accepted that request. Hmm. Well, I'm glad you framed it that way because this story is about our guard being down because of our network of friends being friends with someone or being connected with someone. Yes. And like you, I'll do the same thing. If I get a request from someone I may not be familiar with, Mm -hmm. the first thing I do is check to see who else is this person already connected with. Right. And it is absolutely true that my guard will be lowered if they're connected to people I know. Mm -hmm. And I think that's natural. I think that's human nature. But this story about this entity claiming to be someone named Katie Jones is all about someone who took advantage of this. This is a story from AP. And this character named Katie Jones was connected with a bunch of people on LinkedIn. She claimed to be working as a Russia and Eurasia fellow at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. That is a Washington think tank. Okay. That organization actually does exist. Okay. Now, she was connected with a bunch of people of important status in government, Mm -hmm. other think tanks, things like that. But it turns out that, first of all, this person does not exist at all. Right. And as people have dug into this, they are pretty sure that she was probably spun up by a foreign intelligence service to make these connections with people that they may want to later try to compromise or get to perhaps inadvertently leak information uh, that the Foreign Intelligence Service could use. Sure. 
these foreign intelligence services just try to start with, and, and our intelligence service does this as well, they just start with a friendly contact, a hello, hey, how are you doing? Mm-hmm. That's how it always starts. And it goes on from there. Right. They start asking you little insignificant favors. Right. Hey, can you give me the phone number of this person you work with? They're, they're an old friend and I'd like to reconnect with them. Yes, exactly. And it goes from there, just yep. slowly building up trust. Well, one of the elements of this that I find fascinating is the actual profile picture for this Katie Jones Mm -hmm. seems to have been generated by artificial intelligence. Hmm. It's one of those images that this is not a situation where they took an existing stock photo of a model or something like that. Let me Google Katie Jones picture. This was generated from uh, whole cloth, as they say, via AI. This story from AP really digs in and highlights some of the things that you can see in this picture that point to it not being authentic. I have to say at first glance. At first glance, it looks pretty good. After looking at it for a couple minutes, I'm going to say the left ear looks a little weird. It does. But how often do you look at someone's left ear you don't closely you, you, you right. look it's you like look that, right you look at the picture in yeah, the eyes it's like that thing from shawshank you know how right. often do you look at a man's shoes you right. know right you, you don't you're looking at their eyes you, exactly and, and it, um, this looks like an actual picture of somebody it does so that would help draw people in but it will also include a link there's a website called this person does not exist and what it does is it spins up these fake ai images of people right every time you load the page you get a new face Exactly. That's a fantastic website. Right. But the thing about this is that it makes it impossible to do a reverse image search to see if it's a stock photo. That's exactly right. Because it's not. It's not. If you use this person does not exist, that's a new photo every time you load that page. Right. It's generated by the algorithm behind it. So AP went and they contacted some of the people who had accepted LinkedIn connections with this profile. And most of them, they all had similar stories. They said, I don't really scrutinize my LinkedIn connections because... You know, I may have been at a trade show and you say hello to someone, you're at an event and they say, oh, I'll connect with you later. And it's not perceived that there's not a huge downside to connecting with folks on LinkedIn who may not be as as close real world connections as, say, you know, some of the other social media places where you frequent. Right. There is probably a perceived upside in the fact that you're increasing your network and making your marketability for your later career moves better. Right. Yes. So there's a definite incentive to accept these friend requests or mm-hmm. these connection requests. Mm-hmm. I keep saying friend requests like it's Facebook, but yeah, it's not. Yeah, I know. It's easy. I think that's the common way to say it. These <laughs> right. It's days, like I saying suppose. Kleenex when you mean facial tissue. Right. right? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So LinkedIn has removed this profile. And of course, they've said that whenever a false profile is pointed out to them, they have methods for trying to determine whether it's real or not. And they do delete them. They want everyone on the platform to be authentic. Right. My understanding is that the resume for this Katie Jones was way too impressive for how old Katie Jones is. Oh, yeah. That's interesting, too. That if you looked at the resume for it, or if you looked at all their job history, it added up to being that she had to start work when she was like two or something like that. So there were... were, were, but She just had ambitious parents. You're not going to do that. You're not going to go back and do the math on that. (laughs) No. I don't know. I I don't know how much this affects mere mortals like you and I, who probably aren't targets for foreign intelligence services. But, yes. But you never know. You just be careful. Be, as we always say, be vigilant. Right. It's worth that extra couple seconds to try to make sure that you're not dealing, or in this case, that you're just dealing with a real person. Right. Yeah. <laughs> that's yeah. right. All right. Well, that's my story. What do you have this week, Joe? All right. My story comes from NBC Boston this week. We'll put a link in the show notes. I have a, a video on this. In February of this year, a woman named Christine Liu began receiving a large number of phone calls that appeared to be coming from the Massachusetts State Police. Hmm. And 
they were so persistent that she finally answered one of the calls. Okay. And when they answered, of course, these are scam calls because that's the nature of the show. That's not really a spoiler, right? <laughs> right. The scammer tells her that her identity has been stolen. Hmm. He has a warrant number and a case number, and he makes Christine feel like she's in danger because her identity has been stolen and used for some very serious crimes. And she thinks she's talking to a police she officer. She thinks she's talking to a police officer from right. the police department. Mm -hmm. Someone in authority. Right. So then the next thing this scammer says is we need to work together to get this resolved. Ah, I'm right? going to so help he, you. He Right. Exactly. First, he comes in and he scares Christine. And then he comes in and goes, well, I have the solution. Mm -hmm. That's a very common tactic that we see in these scams. They, yeah. they come in, they terrify you, and they say, I'm also the solution. So this guy that calls her and a team of people actually keep her on the phone for hours walking her through this scam. And they convince her that the only way for her to keep her money safe was to wire it to them while they issue her a new social security number. So money in her bank account right, is going to be wired transferred to them because it's not safe. At her bank account because, because her identity has been stolen. The threat is someone's going to come in, steal the money from her bank account because they've compromised her right. identity. Okay. Right. So over the course of four days, Christine transfers $200,000 in wire transfers to the scammers over six transactions. Wow. Now, Christine makes a good point here. She says that no one at the bank said anything, right? There was no red flag system that caught this. Mm -hmm. But- the scammers had worked around this by saying that when you go to the bank to make the wire transfers, if they ask you what these wire transfers are for, which the bank employees did, mm -hmm. then you are to say it's for family support. Oh. And that so is what Christine told them. Because she's sending money overseas. Right. And that's not uncommon for folks to do. Exactly. To send money overseas to support family members. So these scammers knew mm. – that if they said, well, I'm sending it to this account to protect it because mm -hmm. these guys and the, the, the cops called me and the scammers knew that if she said that, the bank would go, hold on, stop. Right. This is a fraud. This is fraudulent calls. You're being scammed. So when she went in, they said, what is this for? She said family support because that's not uncommon. There are consumer protections in place for debit and electronic transactions, but not for wire transactions. So yeah. this money is probably gone. I think that's a case of the law lagging behind our technology and our current problems. Right. It's both a feature and a bug, right? Because right. especially internationally, I suppose there are benefits to not being able to claw money back right. that's been transferred. Yes. Because then you open yourself up to bad guys – yeah. Clawing money back that's been transferred. Exactly. Here's a trivial example. You've sold something on eBay and maybe it's a thousand dollar item. Yep. You send it to them after they wired you the money. Then they say the wire transfer was fraudulent and they get the money back. Right. So these consumer protections can also be abused. Now, here's the important part of this story that I, I kind of buried this on this. But Christine Liu is no average person. Okay. She is an associate professor at Harvard Medical School. Hmm. And I think it's safe to say that Christine is possessed of above average intelligence, mm. right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, Harvard Medical. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there are no slouches. No, I mean, you know, there are no Hopkins. But, right. Well, uh, <laughs> yes. Who is really, right? Right, exactly. <laughs> so I, I wanted to say something to Christine that if she's listening, I, I doubt she listens to this podcast, but if she is, you're my hero, okay? Not many people would come out and discuss this publicly like, like she has. Mm. And this has to be terribly difficult to come forward and to share your story. But by doing so, you are helping so many people not fall victim to this scam. Yeah. This has to happen more often. 
When somebody gets scammed, the first inclination is to be embarrassed. It's the natural order of things. It's why these scams continue to work. Mm -hmm. If we start opening up and talking about our own faults and talking about how things have worked on us, I think as a society, as a community, global community, we'll be better off. Support people to, right. to remove that shame, remove that sense of shame. Right. Remind them if you tell, you're going to be celebrated for sharing these stories. You're not going to be shamed. Right. And we shouldn't be shaming this. Christine's not dumb. We talk about this often. We talked about the guy from Australia who got scammed out of $200,000. Somebody went so far as to generate a fake website that looked like he was making money. You know, these people are not stupid. They're possessed of at least average intelligence or somehow higher than average intelligence. That's where the money is, right? Yeah. Smart enough to have socked away $200,000, right? right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Just that, I mean, that's got to be above average. Yeah. <laughs> these uh, scammers come in and they go right for your emotions and they short circuit your thinking. Yeah. And in Christine's case, they came in, they said, you're in big trouble, lady, and we're going to help you fix it. Yeah. Right. And so many buttons they push. So many buttons. Yeah. It's, it's a terrible story. But uh, thank you, Christine, for sharing it. Yeah. It's, it's important that people do this. All right. Well, it's time to move on to our catch of the day. This one came to us from someone who goes by the Twitter handle MOS6502, which will have some meaning to folks from the old 8-bit microprocessor days. This is a message, Joe. It comes from the Secret Service. Oh, you better pay attention, Dave. The Department of Homeland Security. That's Washington, D.C., USA. Hmm. And it goes like this. Good day. This is the Department of Homeland Security. We have a vital mission to secure the nation from the many threats we face, as well as Internet fraud. This requires the dedication of more than 230,000 employees in jobs that range from aviation and border security to emergency response. From cybersecurity analyst to chemical facility inspector, our duties are wide ranging, but our goal is clear. Keep America safe. We are happy to inform you that your funds valued at $10,700,000 U.S. state dollars have been approved by the Treasury Department of the United States. Kindly get back to us for further directives. Note, do not reply to any email that comes from the FBI Director Christopher A. Ray. The FBI Director does not email people. He will rather send an agent to your doorstep in person. Do not fall a victim of scam again. A word is enough for the wise. Thank you. And have a good day. James M. Murray, Director, Secret Service. Hmm. That's awesome. I mean, first off, they're actually <laughs> telling you right here in the email that the federal government will not call you or email you to arrest you. We will actually show up at your doorstep. Well, and I love how he's kind of throwing a rival agency under the bus. Right. You know, like those, <laughs> listen, this is from the Secret Service. Those punks over at the FBI, they're probably going to try to scam you. So don't fall for it. You know, they're, they're going to show up at your doorstep or little interagency rivalry thrown in the mix here. So this is just another scam. It looks like the Nigerian print scam. Hey, mm -hmm. we've got this $10.7 million we want yeah. to- uh, By, the, by the authority of the United States. Yeah, they, they have the money, right? No explanation for why they'd have these funds for you. Uh, why would the government want your help? I mean, the government, they go through more money than this in a, in a minute. The Secret Service is keeping America safe. Right. And part of the way they do that is by making sure that people who have an extra $10 million laying around don't- forget about it, that right. it's properly distributed to them. So, yes. so there you go. Thank you, James M. Murray, Director of the Secret Service. All right. Well, that is our catch of the day. Coming up next, Carol Terrio returns. She's going to interview Larry Cashdollar. He's from Akamai, and he's got some news about some pretty clever fishing campaigns. 
And we are back. Joe, it's great to have Carol Terrio back on the show. She recently spoke with Larry Cashdollar. He's from Akamai. And he's got some news about some clever fishing campaigns that people should be aware of. Here's Carol Terrio. So fishing campaigns. I hate them. The security experts out there hate them. Everyday folks that use computers hate them. The only people that seem to like them are those that try and make money out of them. And they're constantly innovating their tactics to try and dupe us into falling for their schemes. Larry Cashdollar is an Akamai senior researcher. He recently discovered a phishing email that tries to scoop up the victim's Facebook and Google credentials using a rather novel approach, Google Translate. Now, Larry was kind enough to walk us through how the phishing attack was constructed. And this is important because it's this kind of knowledge that will help us keep our eyes peeled if this type of attack actually targets us. My first question to Larry was to set the scene. So where was he when he first received this fish email? I just happened to be actually sitting and waiting for my son. He was in basketball and I was checking my, my email. It wasn't in my spam box, which is usually where I check first for interesting tidbits. It was actually in my inbox. So this phishing email had made it past the spam filters for Gmail. And it was telling me that my account had been uh, logged in from a IP address somewhere in Russia. And at first glance, I, you know, I thought this email was fishy, but, you know, my brain was like, you should check into this. Maybe it's legit. So at that point, I clicked the link and saw it had redirected me to Google Translate. And I'm like, well, that's not normal. And it was asking me to log into my Gmail application. And I, I thought to myself, well, that's neat. I've never seen a phishing email redirect through Google to make it look like it's a legit. All right. Okay. So let me slow this down. So you get this email and it's saying someone has logged into your device from a different account or a different location right. than you were actually at. So that right. raised your suspicions right. right away. But what was weird for you is it then went to Google Translate. Yes. Yes. It redirected me through Google Translate and it was actually Google Translate was loading the phishing site through it. And the site itself didn't need translation. It just was looked more legit with the Google Translate domain at the top of my browser. Yeah. For someone who's not doing this stuff as, a, as their day job, they might actually be fooled into thinking it was a, it was a real Google domain if they're, they're looking closely. Sure, especially if people are sitting there on their phones between meetings trying to cram in the most amount of emails they can. But maybe some people have family members who share accounts and they yeah, may not be yeah. that suspicious at that kind of a situation. Yeah, all my accounts have, you know, some sort of two-factor or multi-factor authentication. So to me, to get that email was sort of like, okay, you know, if someone's gotten my password through, you know, some sort of SQL compromise for Google or Gmail, then I should at least have, you know, a, a second factor of authentication on my account. So I should be getting a text about now, which I didn't get. So at that moment, I'm like, okay, this is an interesting fish. Right. So at that point, I had forwarded the email to a different account of mine that I check on a machine that is a lab machine that now doesn't have my normal work stuff on. It's not my, my phone. and It's a clean machine. A, a clean a burner machine. Right. Burner machine. I like that. And started looking at the actual phishing email itself and then the, the site that it was trying to redirect me to and then realized that it was actually, you know, the sole purpose of them using the, the Google Translate was to try and trick the user into thinking it was le a legitimate request from Google to change my password. 
yeah, I wasn't exactly sure what was going on because I'd never seen that before. And then once I got it onto a different machine and was able to look at it closely without looking at it on a, you know, an iPhone or something, I, I realized what the guys were actually up to doing. And so what would happen, I'm guessing, of course, you didn't fall for this, <laughs> but what would have happened right. had someone fallen for it and actually entered their Google credentials on that Google Translate page that had been displayed? Well, in this case, what would have happened was the page redirected to the phishing site. In my case, I would have gotten, at some point, I'm assuming they would have tried to use those credentials to log into my account or they would have sold them on the dark web. But I would assume at some point they would have tried to log in that account and change my credentials. And in my case, I would have gotten a message on my cell phone saying, hey, someone's trying to log into this account and you approve of it. But in, I think most people's cases who aren't as protective of their account, Somebody could have gone in their email. They would have had access to my Google Drive. Yeah. And in this case of this email, it actually, once you log into or submit your credentials to the Google phishing site, it actually redirects you to Facebook, to a Facebook phishing page, which I didn't actually know about. Uh, a reporter from ZDNet actually ticked me off. He was like, well, did you enter your, any credentials into this? And I'm like, no, I was more interested in the you know, how the fish was being concealed, not really about where the fish was going. And he said, well, if you uh -huh. put your credentials in, it redirects you to a Facebook page. He's like, the guys are actually pretty greedy and are being pretty lazy by figuring that if you fell for one phishing attempt, you might fall for another one. And, you know, maybe some not so internet savvy users would think, oh, you know, it's, I need to log into Facebook now after logging into Google when most people are like, wait, I just logged into Facebook. Why would I need to log into Google? Yeah. I bet it works, though. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah, I bet there are people that think, oh, God, you know, Google caught it. And now, you know, they work with Facebook. <laughs> I can just imagine this weird tangential. Oh, yeah. Like all the I'm, systems are trying to reset to, to protect me. I'm sure. You know, I'm sure it's, it's worked on people who think something's mm. fishy about logging into both Google and Facebook for one single request. So and I, I imagine if they're doing it, then it has worked in the past. It's, it's a lazy tactic, but it must be a successful one. Do you think that this particular fish was kind of spray fish, so you were not targeted as a particular user? I think what happened was with all of these massive data breaches and these password and email address dumps, where there's a billion user credential database, yeah. I think now they have Crazy. an enormous email list. I know throwaway passwords of mine have been compromised with along with my email address. Mm-hmm. I have email addresses that I never had submitted uh, publicly that are actually getting fished now because they were part of a SQL dump from, you know, Adobe's breach or, you know, or Yahoo's breach. So, yeah, I'm now getting, you know, phishing attempts on, you know, emails that were private and, and weren't disclosed publicly because, you know, I use those emails to log in to, you know, get a, an Adobe update or whatnot. So, they now have this massive list of emails that they can target with phishing scams. And I think that's what's probably going to drive the, the phishing attacks up is all of those credential dumps. I think more people today than ever before are actually using unique passwords for every yeah. one of their accounts. I think there's a high, you know, not everyone, but there's a greater proportion of people than there were, yeah. say, five years ago. And I wonder if that means you can actually track which passwords have been stolen yes. by whom, you know, because you, it must be easier for those who are in the forensic side to kind of go, interesting, all these passwords that have been stolen happen to belong to, you know, this company I, or these I, I have uh, friends of mine who actually do submit, they keep track of a list of, I don't know how many passwords they must have, but every site they create an account on, they have a unique password for that site and they track which site they use that password on. 
So they know if they see that password turn up that either that site's been compromised right, or if they see that email turn up in spam or with marketing emails, they know that either that site was compromised or his information or, or their information was sold to a third party company for, you know, X amount of dollars to send marketing materials to. Exactly. Exactly. It's interesting because now more people use password managers too, yeah. don't they? So in effect, everyone's kind of got a lot of almost a kind of log of these unique passwords. Yeah. I think with password managers, people can do their own sort of reconnaissance as to where was my account had been compromised on what site just based on either emails or getting to that account. Or- so there seems to be, so that's a really interesting point you made earlier, Larry, that, you know, because of these huge password dumps, you are expecting to see an increase in the number of phishing scams, maybe coming up the next 12 months or so. Yeah. We're also reading of increased targeted phishing attacks where they're actually doing some recon on the people that they're going after or targeting a specific type of person. Maybe they have more money or they have access to the correct accounts, for example. Right. I mean, it, you know, let's say I was targeting Akamai.com, right. the company I work for. You could go through the list of emails or pull down one of those billion user database dumps and look for Akamai email addresses. And then you can take those email addresses and start looking on LinkedIn to see who these email addresses belong to or, you know, who these people are and then specifically target fishes for people who might have access to accounts payable at Akamai. You know, you could, there's all sorts of things like that that I think is going to come with these or probably has already come of these database breaches. And yeah. Now, okay, so this is the $10 million question. Advice. We need advice for our listeners. What can you tell them? What kind of things can they do to better protect themselves against these types of fishes? Be wary of all emails. If it's something that's asking you to click a link and it seems urgent, where it's saying your account's been compromised or you need to fill out a form or complete some sort of document in order to get something, be wary of those emails. They're usually preying on your humanity and your need to get things fixed or done. And then, you know, if Mm. there's a link embedded, you know, if my bank says you need to change your password, I go to my web browser and I go to my bank. I don't click the link in my email. And then exactly, I can't stress this enough, two-factor or multi-factor authentication, you know, on every, you have to have it these days because, you know, if your, if your password is compromised, and you reuse your passwords or, you know, if, if passwords compromised through a data breach, you'll need another step in order to get into your account. So, And unique passwords, I guess, you know, that goes without saying unique passwords for all your accounts. Yeah. Yeah. One password per account. In this day and age where, you know, you have information technology is the big thing now. It's, it's you know, data cleanliness and, and your own operational security. People should really try and have either multi-factor or two-factor authentication. Yeah, I drink the 2FA Kool-Aid as well, or multi-factor Kool-Aid as well. What do you think about people regularly changing passwords? Do you think that's something that's advisable or? Uh, I I think, you know, changing your password every couple of months is a good idea. I try to do it more often than I should, but just for, for due diligence, just if you have the same password for a couple of years on a website, you don't know if that database could have been compromised and then the, the company never made it publicly known that they had lost a million user accounts. So it's always wise to just rotate your passwords. So that was Larry Cashdollar, a senior researcher at Akamai. I liked his tips. Number one, having a unique email address for every online account that you create so that if you lose an address, you can actually trace it back to its original source. That's clever. And although changing passwords 
regularly, maybe, you know, every six months, year or five years, fell out of fashion for many security experts. I think Larry's argument holds water as to why it's a good idea. After all, none of our data seems very safe out there these days. This was Carol Terrio for Hacking Humans. All right. Interesting stuff, huh? Yeah, yeah. Very interesting. I'm going to tell you something, Dave. If something gets through my spam filters and says that one of my accounts at one of my institutions has been accessed from Russia, that gets my attention immediately. <laughs> right. That's a pretty pretty good phishing technique. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I'm going to be more cautious, but it is something I'm not going to ignore. I'm going to pay attention to that message. Mm-hmm. Using Google Translate is a very clever way to obfuscate a malicious website. You and I did this while we were listening to the interview. You can create a link that loads up any page you want, and the domain that your website goes to is a Google domain. Right. Right? So if I loaded up a malicious Gmail phishing page and you went to it, you would be going to a Google page and think that you were entering your information into Google's web page, but you would not be. Yeah. Yeah, right. so it has that legitimacy of Google right. right at the beginning of the URL. That is very clever. Mm-hmm. I wonder if Google is aware of this and doing something about it. Yeah, it'd be nice if they had some way to flag it. Because mm-hmm. you suspect Google would know or would at least have a lead on suspicious right. websites. Right. But yeah, interesting. I like that Larry has a burner machine. I don't have a physical machine, but I do have a VM that I use like this. Mm-hmm. It's not, not an ideal solution because any malware knows it's in the VM. A lot of malware does. Not any malware, but a lot of it does. And actually, I'm not trying to download malware, but I will go to links in a VM like a Linux VM. Because mm-hmm. usually these malicious links are not targeting Linux machines. They're targeting Windows-based machines. That's right. I like how this website, some other researchers contacted him and said that after you enter your Google credentials, it goes to collect your Facebook credentials. If you're going to swing for the fences, right? (laughs) (laughs) Right. So, Uh, yeah. Uh, Larry calls this lazy. I mean, yeah, maybe it's lazy. And I guarantee this worked on a certain percentage of the people that went to it. They collected some Facebook credentials as well. Yeah. That happened. Yeah. We got you once. Right. Let's see if we we can get you again. I'll bet you if you enter your Facebook credentials, it takes you to another place. (laughs) Right. Yeah. These huge password dumps like Collection One or these aggregations of passwords are making it a lot easier to do these phishing attacks. Mm -hmm. This data is now being essentially managed like big data is because it is now big data. Right. And people have access to it. So it really creates a problem for users out there. Yeah. I would say if there's a password that you've been using for a long period period of time, Mm -hmm. a legacy password, your favorite old password, just get rid of it. Right. Just make a new one. Right. Yeah. Just just do it. Make make a new password. Because they're already out there. Yeah. Chances are somebody has it. Have I been pwned and and look at the passwords page. Mm -hmm. And I I used to use these passwords many years ago. We all did. They're all in there. Yeah. Everything I ever use, because I still remember them, they're easy to remember, they're right. all in there. Right. None of my passwords from my password manager are in there, though, right. because they're all random 20-character passwords. Yeah. I like a lot of Larry's advice. Be wary of emails that sound urgent, mm-hmm. right? They're trying to elicit an activity from you, and they're trying to get you to not think about it. Right. Don't click the link mm-hmm. and use multi-factor authentication. When I give people advice, I say the single biggest thing is using multi-factor authentication. And of course, use a password manager. At the end of, the, of this and, and during the discussion, Carol and Larry talk about changing your password. There is some research out there that people might be misinterpreting. And the research says it is a bad idea to force people to change their password. Right. Okay. So because what happens when you force people to change their password, they inherently will pick a weak password. Mm -hmm. They will just change the password minimally enough to meet your requirements and they're going to use and that password can be broken very quickly. Right. That's where you get people using password one and then password two, password three. Exactly. 
if you break a password, let's say it's Maryland Wear, because I'm reading off a bumper sticker on your car here, Maryland <laughs> Wear 5, and, I, and you make me change it, then I'm going to change it to Maryland Wear 6. Yeah. That is not the same thing as you changing your password as a user. Mm-hmm. Okay. You changing your password as a user as a personal policy is a good policy to have. So every so often on my websites that I deem risky enough for this, usually every uh, 180 days, my password manager prompts me to change the password on these websites. Mm. Uh, so you have it dialed in to prompt you, I do. remind you. Remind mm-hmm. me, right. Yep. It, it doesn't really prompt me. It just turns the little icon next to the password red, reminding me that this password is due for changing. Yeah. Well, that's good. And I change them the next time I log into that web page. Mm-hmm. Because I use an open source solution that I manage myself, I frequently have to make a backup of this thing so I don't get locked out of my accounts if I ever lose my two-factor authentication that accesses my password safe. But there again, I'm using multi-factor authentication. So I I would say it is good for you to change your password on a regular basis with some periodicity. It is bad for someone to force you to change your password because that doesn't work for the vast majority of people who have accounts on that system. Right. Long random passwords generated by a password manager. Yep. That's the way to go. It is. Yeah. Thanks to the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute for their participation. You can learn more at isi.jhu.edu. The Hacking Humans podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technology. Our coordinating producer is Jennifer Iben, and our amazing CyberWire team is Stefan Vaziri, Tamika Smith, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Carol Terrio, Nick Velicki, Bennett Moe, John Petrick, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bitt. And I'm Joe Kerrigan. Thanks for listening.